0: just absolutely randomly, I was talking to a colleague over coffee and she was saying how in the 80s, a lot of research has actually moved on from binary and, you know, they really kind of felt that we will move away from binary understanding of gender. And then she was saying, so she's an academic who works on on gender. Um, she was saying that Spice Girls came and ruined it for everyone, you know, because kind of with the sexual power and, you know, you, the girl power being uh, pretty and like having boobs, you know, and sort of singing um, slightly, you know, occasionally inappropriate songs. Um, and it really made me laugh, you know, but I, I, I keep thinking about it. And, you know, maybe she's right. Maybe there is something I've to been, it, right? That
1: I, ha- I had not thought of Spice Girls as the root cause of...
0: <laughs> of, of binary gender understanding. So, yeah, I don't know how we're going to ever fight Spice Girls.
2: Um, something to consider. I'm truly devastated at this Spice Girls theory. Oh no, I'm really
0: sorry. Yeah, I was as well. I was just like, oh my god, I have never thought about this, you know? Um, so yeah, that's all I've been thinking about for last week, literally, Spice Girls, you know. All those, you know, hair brush kind of singing in front of the mirror. What was I doing? I was like contributing to those binary discussions. <laughs> I don't, I, 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 I don't know what to say with this introduction. Um, y-
3: yeah <laughs> Hi.
4: <laughs> we, we went with this introduction just to give everybody a taste of like what our calls are like with some of our guests. We do have lots of <laughs> funny times and our conversation goes in tangents sometimes. but we don't include everything in our episodes, right?
0: Uh, yeah, I think we can. We can run a special or probably a series of specials of, um, you know, comprising a variety of topics that we've discussed over, over this last year, over the last season. But also, you know, talking about Spice Girls, uh, Jason, you almost got the VHS, right? Uh,
1: <laughs> from Spice
0: Girls. Remember, we were discussing, it was right about uh, around the birthday.
4: I, I never got, yeah, I never got it. Though.
0: Oh, really? Okay, well, next year maybe.
4: Was somebody going to send me a VHS?
0: I I think all of us were considering, you know, whilst you were laughing at the background. The rest of us were discussing the color of that VHS and whether we can find one for you.
4: (laughs) Well, anyway, a little outtake from the episode on gender when we talked to uh, our guests from Practical Action. And we thought it was a good way to start off this final episode in the season, um, where we're going to look at some of our highlights and some of the things that were or uh, most interesting or most poignant or funny. Yeah, so that's what we're going to do today. This is episode 17, our final episode of season two. Yay
0: yay and it yeah so last episode you know i've noticed um in last two weeks i was saying in episode 15 oh it's almost the end of season two and then in episode 16 i was again (laughs) like oh it's almost the end of season two and now it is the end of season two um so here we are
4: yeah like your enthusiasm for finishing the season has just been going up and up and up it's crazy
0: (laughs) yeah no i'm just enthusiastic that we're kind of keep on going and we're recording season three already while I've enjoyed season two um me too (laughs) I guess yeah you too I hope our audience enjoyed it
4: I hope so I I mean I feel like we've we've got some good feedback and lots of uh encouragement from different people and organizations interested in what we're doing and um you know potential partnerships coming up so lots of things to look forward to.
0: Yeah, but also we've had some amazing guests. Um, you know, we've really tried, I think, this season to talk to a diverse range of academics and non-academics. And, mm-hmm. you know, thanks thanks to all our guests for all the time that they've given us. Uh, it's been absolutely wonderful. But also, you know, I really enjoyed our special episode. So we had the um, our first episode in Spanish, um, The Empire, right? So that was wonderful, although I didn't understand much. <laughs> um, and we had our book group. Special episode. Again, it was fun to discuss the book, um, although it was 700 pages, and you didn't read it, Jason. Um, still bitter about that.
4: I read some of it, but I, I wasn't able to contribute too much to the discussion, unfortunately. Yeah. Sorry.
0: <laughs> but okay, you'll read your own book, won't you, when the next special episode is coming?
4: Um, yeah, I'll, I'll read it before the episode. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Great. And you know, you've promised that on the live stream, so you, you have to do it now. Um, and also of course there was a special episode on COVID-19, um, which was very, very interesting. And it was just in the beginning, right? It was like almost five weeks ago now. And I can't believe that.
4: Yeah, it was pretty early days. Right. And since then, you know, the disaster research community has really, uh, been getting involved in different ways. And we have, uh, some exciting developments with, with working groups coming up, especially looking at disaster capitalism, which is the one that we're taking the lead on. And then there's some other working groups um, that we're involved in separately. And yeah, my understanding is about 30 different disaster working groups to look at COVID-19 from the Natural Hazard Center and NSF funding. So um, we will talk more about that as as things take shape for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so lots of things to look forward to, um, you know, in season three, and also hopefully in between now and season mm-hmm. three when we're taking a break, but we're kind of not really taking a break. So, Jason, what what are the numbers? You are our uh, number keeper. Is is there? of have I made up a word again? I've been making up a word in episode. You,
5: know?
4: <laughs> you love making up words. Um, I know. Wow. So I'm. I'm oh. I need to log back into my account. Wouldn't you know, I had it already and then it's like your time has run out. Do you want oh, to no, log in running. again? Yeah, now I'm back. Okay, so if I look at um the statistics from the start of the year, what I find is that um our you might have guessed this, but our most downloaded episode um in season 2 was not an actual episode. It was a special it was COVID nineteen. Who would have guessed? I bet you guessed that, right?
0: Yeah, I guessed that. <laughs> she said, <laughs> <laughs> "No, I, yeah, I guess it. It's not surprising." Um, and hopefully, we'll have a couple of more specials around COVID nineteen. But you know, watch the space.
4: So COVID nineteen was obviously got some traction. Was shared quite widely. It was kind of early in the development of this pandemic and before everybody started podcasting about it i think Mm. because i i hear that the podcast equipment and stuff is running really low online because everybody started everybody started podcasting yeah
0: oh see we're such trendsetters
4: totally (laughs) so the other the other episodes that were spread around quite widely and and captured the imagination of listeners Definitely the first episode of the season with Laurie Peake, where we are kind of setting the scene and talking about the power of stories Um, that really resonated and continues to be downloaded a lot. Other ones um, were Terry and Alexander talking about LGBTQI experiences of risk that uh, continues to be one of the most popular of the season, as well as the episode where we did a compilation with our um listeners about resilience oh yeah remember that one so that one is uh a very popular episode so those are some of the ones that are are most popular so far of course some of the some of the releases in the last 30 days um have you know were picked up really well when they were released but we they haven't been out for so long so yeah um the the recent kind of series that we did looking at different groups and uh narratives about different so called vulnerable groups have been been really widely listened to, but we just don't have long term statistics on that yet
0: yeah those episodes you know on vulnerable groups those um they kind of pushed me most i think um you know because really i didn't know much about homeless people or mm-hmm. prisoners or lgbtqi and it was just great to to get that thinking you know and to kind of to, to discuss those ideas um i really really enjoyed it
4: yeah and i think that's been a a feature of this season is us kind of learning from the process mm. and i've been reflecting on that recently you know how Healthy the the process of creating content is for me personally just to to grow in kind of knowledge and understanding and empathy and uh, learning to listen better, ask better questions. All of these things are really good for me as a human <laughs> and as a as a researcher.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the learning side is just you know I I, I didn't expect that, and it's I guess only when you listen then you learn, you know, when you don't, Mm. when you speak, you don't learn. Yep. And it it just becomes so important. So we'll keep on doing this. But anyway, so today we're going to play some of our favorite moments from season two. And we'll just, we just want to reflect a little bit more on what it is we've been doing. So over the whole of season two, we had three prominent themes, really. Um, The first theme was about um, how we're telling the stories. The second theme was about whose stories we're telling. And the third theme was why these stories are so powerful. So the theme of the second season, which we will continue in the third season, um, was about narrative. And our first guest, I'm sure you remember her, uh, Laurie Peake, was the one who opened the telling stories idea for us.
6: I think stories are absolutely integral to everything that we do. Stories have been integral to our survival as a people on this planet for longer than written history. Stories are not only what create connection between people, but stories, I think, also are what make empathy possible and understanding But stories also help complicate things. They bring difference and diversity and complexity into all of our lives. And so I think as researchers, stories are so important because it's through stories that I think we can actually attain deeper knowledge about the people and the places that we care so much about.
4: So that was Laurie Peak who was our first guest of the season. Um Laurie's been a great support just around the podcast and kind of what we're trying to do with communicating about disasters to the public. Um and can't wait to work more with Laurie and, and the Natural Hazards Center moving forward, but I I thought that clip it really set the scene really nicely for the season, you know, focusing on the the importance of stories and connecting people and presenting opportunities to to learn and grow and understand but also helping us to get at some of the hard issues that we need to deal with and helping us to like problematize life you know
0: yeah but also I think this little snippet of uh, Laurie's episode kind of highlighted why stories are so crucial right and mm-hmm. we will come back to this as we talk uh, through this episode today um, I think the, the power of stories in particular in the past couple of months has really become prominent right because we've all seen how narratives are twisted and turned mm-hmm. and how we're all getting the stories that we want to get or that uh, you know certain powerful people want us to get into here um, and if we don't challenge those stories then is that the the kind of our survival is at stake but also living in a different way and living in a different place um, because stories very much depend on the context within which they unfold right and very often that is kind of connected to the physical place and our guest highlighted it so well.
7: I have seen the futility of looking at heritage as just monuments or buildings or isolated uh, you know, icons uh, which actually uh, have uh, which are perceived as beautiful, as uh, you know, touristic, but without really connecting to the people who are real uh, holders or who are real bearers of this heritage. So, uh, for me, uh, heritage makes sense only when it is connected to the place to which it belongs and when I say the place to which it belongs I'm talking about uh, the people who are inhabiting the place I'm talking about um, the the connections to the local geography local natural resources climate I mean it is a, a a collective understanding of multiple interrelationships that have evolved over time uh, which for me gives a sense to something um, as heritage because it has endured for so long because it has sustained itself for so long
4: so i think that clip is so interesting because uh, we talk about this when we discuss um, how risk is created and um how it's so tied to the place and both of us kind of coming from built environment backgrounds as well when we talk about recovery and reconstruction it's really important for us to keep the focus on how the if we just develop things or redevelop things the same way that we've always done or the way that the the um status quo would have would would imagine recovery looking then we often just recreate and exacerbate um inequalities and put risk upon people you know
0: yeah and it's again the story of the place that often um kind of narrates that story of recovery right and the story of recovery is very often the story of those Uh, of the winners, so to say. It's just like history, you know. History is the story of those who who wrote the history. Um, And place has um, a a lot to contribute to here. And it was interesting, you know, when we were talking to Rohit and I guess quite a few of other guests, um, very often we were talking about resilience, right? And we were saying how in disaster studies, we kind of got used to resilience being a good thing. And, you know, I'm using quotation mark here, right? Mm -hmm. Resilience... um, has been having this sort of positive um, tint to it right and I think the episode on resilience that so many of you have contributed to um, uh, made me so angry <laughs> yes yeah, it was great <laughs> I really enjoyed um, listening to all the opinions because I think we unpacked some of the issues that resilience present and the narrative of resilience presents
4: we definitely did and it uh, allowed people to um maybe think about resilience from different perspectives that they hadn't thought about before. One of the things I really enjoy about working in a, in a research environment with resilience as kind of our gathering theme um, is that we all have different perspectives and different things that we focus on, different ways we understand resilience. Um, even different ways we might define or refuse to define resilience so it's like um, I think it's really healthy to to talk about the nuance of language and how important language is and that's like another thing that we've been talking about in this season right so this resilience episode was um, I think one of the coolest things we did in the season and You know just just like in season one we had that really great episode where we had audience participation talking about whether disasters are natural we really appreciate all the contributions
8: i don't know that resilience can be helpful in telling the stories of disasters in fact i think that sometimes talking about disasters in this framework of resilience can actually confuse and kind of obscure the topic. And I think that's really rooted in how everyone is using slightly different definitions of resilience. I think it can even kind of help facilitate some of that miscommunication about disasters. I think a lot about resilience and how we use the term in research, but also how we use the term in efforts of public engagement. And I don't have clear answers here, but I also kind of think about it in how I hear survivors using this term resilience. When I talk to survivors right after a disaster, I very often hear them describe themselves as resilient. And they're using the term to mean that they're themselves and their community made it through the impact of the disaster and that they work together.
3: I,
0: well, you know, I think now everybody knows, uh, Jason certainly knows that I, I I, am not very happy with the whole idea of resilience. You know, I, I, I find it just so um, misused and abused and really, um, uh, resilience for me has become kind of this tool of neoliberal um, agenda and status quo, right? And yeah. I think... S- Sam really summarized it so nicely that w- we we don't know what resilience is right we don't know what resilience means to us any longer um i think many many of us are sharing kind of my feelings where we, we don't know whether it's good or bad or like it mm. would be good right if we used it properly it's a nice idea which has been just completely twisted on its head um so it was it was it was really really nice um for samantha to summarize it everything for us so nicely in this clip but also so many other people contributed and it was fascinating to see how how different how many different views there are on what really is kind of the same idea you know so pretty much everyone agreed that it, it, it is and <laughs> And not a very nice word any longer, because of um, neoliberal way of using it. But then the meanings of resilience um, were very different for different people.
4: yeah, I guess it just makes us uh, really conscious of this problem we come up against when we use words in maybe blase ways, or we make assumptions about what other people understand from the words that we say. So uh, resilience is like a a perfect example of maybe one of the most problematic words in disaster studies that and and beyond disaster studies right it's a yeah part of the problem is that it's just so interdisciplinary um that it takes on all these different meanings from different fields and so um i i mean personally i try to take a positive approach to it and see how it can be used in in ways to bring people together um, and open okay. conversations, but uh in saying that, I think it's really important that we always maintain a critical approach. and you know i I often find myself in scenarios where i I feel like I need to say, "Well, let's hold on and talk about this for a few minutes so we so we make sure that everybody knows there's different ways to understand this concept. And so we're not just all proceeding based on a very myopic sort of view of of this. Because that that tends to be the uh, what happens at times.
0: Yeah. And so what you've said now is basically our second theme, right? How we tell stories matter. It's not just what stories we're telling, right? It's how we're telling their stories. Um, and again, we had quite a few guests who... Uh, really showed us very different ways of narrating and telling the stories.
4: Yeah, it was so fun to hear from different creatives, you know, that use their craft to explore some of these difficult issues in society. And so during the season, we had um, guests on who were uh, looking at how to use illustration, looking at how to use poetry documentary filmmaking, journalism, um, so many different ways of communicating stories through different mediums. Um, And I think that was just a feature that really stands out in this season. So there's so many ways that we can tell stories. And I think if you listen to the season, there's a lot of great tips in there on how to get started um, in exploring different mediums through which to to bring your stories to life. So, uh, the first one that we um, might talk about is when we had Gemma Sue on to talk about her use of graphic uh, novels to tell stories about her research. And that was episode nine. If anybody is interested in it, um, let's listen in to Gemma. <laughs>
9: If you if you think about all the different ways that you can communicate an idea, you have a podcast, you have a you have a video game, you have a, a, a poem, a, a play, um, a novel, a film. They all tell stories in different ways because of the way that the 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 technological form. So if you were to try and communicate a research finding in a tweet, which is 140 characters, it's going to reach certain group of people it's going to be quite a simplistic way of telling a story whereas if you have um, a video game you can have a scenario where a person that can explore multiple stages of the game they have to use their agency to um, unpack ideas to solve puzzles um so it's less didactic whereas if you have um a, a film that has a more linear narrative where it's, there's one storyline driving all, all the way through. So it, depending on which medium you use, you'll be able to communicate your story in different ways and reach different people.
4: So in that clip from Gemma, I think it's important to pick up on that kind of challenge that she laid out to, to people who have stories to tell to consider the different advantages of different mediums in engaging their audiences, getting the audience maybe to take a decision like in a video game, you know, Um, or having that sort of um, plot, you know, of a film. Um, You have different things like the journalists might use, you know, where you quite opposite to what we do sometimes as academics, you bring the kind of main surprising thing right to the front of the story you know it's like in your first paragraph what's really interesting here um whereas researchers we tend to hide it at the back so um i think it's really it's really important that we consider all these different ways of telling story in different mediums we can use
0: yeah and i think what Gemma also highlighted you know when we're talking to her is that it's very interesting to work with different people who can kind of help you right? to use these different mediums of communication. And she um, t- t- told us quite a lot about her work with the illustrator who helped her to put together this graphic novel. And it is yeah. challenging, but it's that is the important challenge because it would allow us to talk to the audience that we would usually not engage with at all. And I guess another way of talking to public, again, a public a type of public that as academics we may not be engaged in at all is poetry. I absolutely love talking to Ali. You know, Ali is a very good friend, so I I do talk to her quite a lot on on a regular basis. Um, But I think it's very interesting that there is now this move towards um, poetry and also fiction in climate change and disasters, and her reflection on coastal change and climate change through her poetry um, was quite fascinating. And I also absolutely love that we actually got to hear some of her poems. (laughs) ¶¶
5: Sea Level Rise on an Interactive Map Start at sea level and hit the up arrow Dark blue engulfs Great Yarmouth and Pool, Then London awash from Canvey Island to Canary Wharf We'll navigate home Reckon the seas surge over doomsday farmland Outflanking you click by click to the threshold of your house Your tongue slipping on names sunk in sediment and brackish water. Your home means nothing to that future of eroding cliffs, toppling pylons, tree stumps at low tide, decaying roads to no place. The sea sends harbinger gulls inland. We tread the high paths. At 60 metres, we're islands of national park.
0: Ali just summarized this coastal change, right? And what is a pretty short poem, but it just, it gives so much emotion and it shows kind of the connection to a place and to to a story and the, the change in kind of, in, in time and space. And I, I just love it that you can capture it so nicely, whereas we would have probably captured it in 27 pages um, through methodolo- methodological approach, right? And it wouldn't have been as emotional i don't think
4: yeah and it wouldn't reach the same people you know those people who yeah. will feel a connection to the issue through poetry that are never going to feel connection to a to a research study or to the language that you use to write about the the research you know but who will engage with a, with the a poems and then another way that we explored this uh sort of idea of storytelling with different mediums was through filmmaking and we had two guests on who were talking about filmmaking we probably have three filmmakers on if you can't anthony lowenstein as well talking about how do you be authentic and true to the the to the story and the people that you're telling a story about or creating content about how do you represent them could you represent what what do people care about also looking at filmmaking as a way of expression and finding freedom in in your creativity as well so maybe we could just play these these clips from the filmmakers that we had on this season
1: well i think it's important for 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 people out there who you know maybe are are into film maybe they're in college maybe they're just out of college maybe they have a full-time job in in video or television to, to to actually create their own work you know um, if you're if you're working for a company or you're working on a TV show, essentially you're you're creating someone else's work the entire time. Um, so I think that's where it, it is important for for people to make their own content, to you know whatever's going on in their head, to actually somehow put that out into the world. Um, and I guess this is this is the tricky thing with with capitalism, in that people feel they don't have enough time to you know, maintain their mental health, let alone pursue a passion project about a topic they care about.
3: We never have a chance to see what's happened really in there, how people respond. Uh, usually, they ask me that, uh, is it really they are they concerned about the heritage just after the disaster? Uh, yes, actually, respond is yes. When you watch the video, they all say that, After we checked our family and the loved ones, and we make sure that they are secure, we just run to the heritage site and check the building. Because uh, all of them believe that, uh, that is because they spend all of their life, they dedicate their life for protecting that heritage. And the continuity is very important, uh, not only for physically, but psychologically important for them because they, it was in there before them, and they wanted to be the channel for continuity. That's very important for them.
0: Well, I think what Joseph and Zainab both um, highlighted for us is that it is the power of of what people see on the screen, and that ability to um, give a message which otherwise you know may not be there. And it's for me, you know, particularly Zainab's stories. We're about the representation of something that we don't really talk about, right? We don't really kind of represent human emotion towards heritage, uh, particularly after a disaster. And I think Joseph reflected on that sense of belonging, right? And kind of sense of ownership, maybe to an extent, Um, even emotional ownership um, when it comes to making movies and how we can really, really express ourselves through something that is not um, usually used, again, for communicating and narrating stories.
10: Mm.
4: and i guess everybody's different everybody has their um preferred mode of learning and preferred mode of like engaging with stories some people just like like to engage with written words and others like to listen to podcasts or (laughs) or like or like tell tell stories to their to their friends you know orally or And some people like to sit and watch a movie, you know, so everyone has their different ways of that they prefer to engage with content.
0: Yeah. And um, talking of movies, you know, you've triggered a thought there. You know, so we've been um, discussing for a while that we'd love to have a kind of disaster movie night um, as a part of the podcast. Maybe we can do a sort of Google Box uh, thing where uh, you'd all join us and we watch a terrible disaster movie together. Um, so, you know, would people be up for it? Let us know. You know, tell us on Twitter uh, and we'll arrange something in season three if you're interested.
4: Okay, and, and I think moving on from talking about mediums and talking about how people create content. Um, we also had a a really interesting theme that kept coming up during the season, which was, you know, this political side of storytelling and the, the power of narratives, which Laurie really um laid out in our first episode of the season, but it kept coming coming up and the fact that narratives are used and stories are used to serve political purposes, often um, the kind of purposes that dehumanize people and oppress people in our society.
10: The fact that Afghanistan, for example, listeners might not be aware, has some of the greatest untapped resources in the world, particularly copper, lithium and other resources Um, and that's I mean a disaster waiting to happen I mean one can only imagine that if if and when that country is at peace which right now feels like a long way away Uh, there are vultures circling that have been for years in fact since the Soviet invasion 40 odd years ago but particularly since the US went in in October 2001 and I've done a lot of work on this issue particularly about going to local communities that are already suffering from either American or Chinese, mining contracts. And the communities are being utterly shafted. I mean, they're shafted by the government, they're shafted by the mining company, they're shafted by local militias, the Taliban, they're caught between um, various insurgent groups. And it's not surprising in those kinds of places when you go there that, and this is why I think it's so important to humanise these stories, is why people in a place like Afghanistan join the insurgency.
0: Right, so it's kind of going back to what we said earlier, right? It's about how we're telling the story, what power and who has the power to tell that story. I think it's really, really important, particularly in disaster studies and also in disaster context. Again, going back to COVID-19, you know, I guess we we can't not talk about it um, (laughs) since we're recording kind of right in the middle of pandemic. Um, We see the power of the storytelling And that power is extremely political. So anyone who says that disasters are not political, you know, that disasters are natural, as we, again, we see so um, much of happening, right? And anyone who says that we have no one to blame um, for disasters, or again, for COVID-19, that is just, they're just exercising their power and hiding the story that needs to be told, right?
4: Hell yeah. Um yeah like it was great to talk to Anthony about his career because he's been telling these stories for for years um and really um trying to take down some of these commonly accepted narratives um which are used to to serve those with power and so Anthony and Joseph both talked about this and then Heidi Harmon who's um our mayor friend from California, um, who's just awesome. She also talked about the way that the powerful use stories to trick us, you know, to create illusions and, um, to get what they want. And so, um, let's listen to this clip.
11: What I'm hearing you say is what I think a lot about is that it's bringing up all of these issues that, have been maybe below levels of awareness, you know, um, just the general separation that we experience. And I think ultimately, climate crisis is a symptom of that illusion of separation, you know, that we are separate from ourselves, we're separate from each other, and we're separate from nature. Um, And none of that's really true. And I think in our hearts or guts, we know that, but we experience that separation. And, And again, capitalism has, benefited and uh, amplified that separation Um, and so i think that climate crisis is bringing up a huge human um it's a spiritual crisis basically or and it's it's a structure for that and a spiritual awareness of of the reality that we're all connected on some level
0: what a convenient story to tell right the story of kind of separation and what illusion to create um but we are kind of all living through that illusion, and I, I, I was glad. I, I, I'm, I'm glad to see now <laughs> again. I keep coming back to COVID nineteen, my favorite topic, clearly. <laughs> um, I spend way too much time on Twitter reading about it. But w- what I, I'm really, really glad to see is the is that these powerful stories are not always the stories of capitalism and separation. We've really seen quite a lot of stories that. Um, Unpack the problems of capitalism, the problems of um, neoliberalism. Right, many people have been challenging status quo because of COVID nineteen, because I think mm. all the root causes have been exposed. And Heidi and Anthony um, and Joseph have talked to us about that, um, and they have also talked about. Uh, about solidarity and kind of camaraderie and sense of togetherness which again we see and it's just wonderful to see those positive responses so I'm glad to see that people are pushing against disillusion uh, creation and pushing against the powerful stories to create their own powerful stories which are much more meaningful.
4: No it's so true that disasters always expose the problems with society right and the thing I've been talking about recently is like how this pandemic is exposing those flaws over an extended period of time um, instead of, you know, usually the the mainstream kind of framing of a disaster is like a short term event, you know. And so obviously we talk about disasters as long term processes of accumulated risk and release. But I think now people are really engaging with some of these big narratives about What's wrong with society, you know? Right, and so, but the question is like, how do we get people to change? How do we get people to actually be part of action to create something different? And I, I really hope that, given the the long term nature of this exposure of society, you know, of the flaws, we're gonna see sustained um, creative action against the status quo to create something better. And so um, we talked to Santina Contreras um, about how to, how to engage and about participation, how to do participation genuinely and not as some sort of tokenism.
12: I guess kind of as you described, like cover up in some ways, um, lack of information or knowledge about, you know, what is really a well-informed, development process or well-informed way to go about doing this work. Um, because, you know, you heard, or, you know, however you, you came to the conclusion, you know that if you that the right thing to say is this word. And so by using it, it triggers that you're doing the right thing. And so I've had countless conversations with groups where they're saying, um, what they're supposed to say we use a very engaged process we are very participatory but within seconds they're what they're describing that they're doing um is you know potentially not that right not what you, we would think of that but they but they either intentionally know that saying that will sort of mask that or without even knowing don't make the connection between what their actual activities may or may not be doing to further that word that they're describing it as so
0: The meaningfulness of participation and of engagement is just so important. And I, you know, as I said just now, I hope we'll see more of that. Um, I think this whole narrative about going back to normal um, is thankfully really being challenged, right? Because people understand that, you know, they don't want to go. We don't want to go back to normal. People realize that it is not meaningful, Um, the normal is not what we want. And I think it's only through kind of meaningful participation and meaningful engagement that we can all take a positive action, right? And somehow respond and, um, you know, go against the status quo, kind of go, go against the mainstream challenge that normative practices and um, status quo practices. And, you know, talking of positive response, hopefully if our bandwidths, allow, um, there will be a special episode on positive response with um, some of wonderful friends um, from um, Brazil and from the UK and from Chile and from Denmark. Um, So watch this space. So whilst we're on the break, having a break, we might have a special episode in a few weeks' time. And well, so the power of stories, the politics of stories is important. But also, as we said in the very beginning, it's really, really important who tells the story right so what lens it is we're using and um how we're looking at the story um through through each group we've engaged with quite a few amazing friends here in this category and as we said both jason and i um really really liked um this uh, these particular topics because it was so new to us, right and it was just so challenging um to think about stories that are told by or told off these certain categories of people. um and what I really liked is that, Whilst we we're discussing LGBTQI, gender, disability, children, prisoners, homelessness, um, the core theme was intersectionality, that we can never look um, at one group and we can never tell the story of a particular group through just the prism of that one group. These are not the stories that we need to be telling. And these are the stories that are actually creating quite a lot of problems.
4: So I think what we'll do is just play some audio from this series of episodes, which was looking um, in more detail at some of these groups that we often pass off as vulnerable or marginalized. Um, And I encourage everyone to listen to these full episodes to really learn more in detail about the complexity of each of these groups um, and the ways that we often minimize them or make them invisible because of the way that we talk about them in the wrong way.
13: A lot of researchers and community organizers were in some ways looking forward to uh, there actually being questions that get at sexual orientation and gender identity. And there actually being a mechanism that we have to understand how many LGBTQ people and households there are here. Um, And that was Shut down by the Trump administration. Um they were not having that. And so while there are many other organizations trying to get around this and different sort of methods that people use to understand household composition, to estimate um and then project what LGBT populations um, numbers look like, I think just the issue of not knowing completely you know, hampers the case that people can make um, for resources and then the types of questions that can be asked in a sort of disaster research context. That, and that also, you know, renders our populations, I guess, like, invisible and more vulnerable to different forms of exploitation and oppression.
2: There's a risk that treating gendered vulnerability as the inherent vulnerability of this homogenous population of women can result in a perception that gendered vulnerabilities are inevitable. So that kind of societal lethargy can disincentivize the action that's needed to transform those systems which serve to perpetuate the gendered inequalities which cause those vulnerabilities. Um, So Mariana mentioned um, just as an example that there's a lot of evidence that rates of gender-based violence increase during a disaster. Uh, And if we're treating women as vulnerable and saying that as a group women are vulnerable to gender-based violence in a disaster setting, that's not addressing the root causes of that violence. And the root causes of that violence are not the vulnerability of women. Um, So in that sense, treating women as vulnerable can actually make them vulnerable, as well as exacerbating the vulnerabilities of other marginalized gender groups by excluding them from consideration in the first place.
14: Well, I think the problem with any narrative about vulnerable groups of people is that, you know, when you actually meet Those individuals who are members of the vulnerable group category, they themselves really do not appreciate being labeled um, as immutably vulnerable. It could be quite paternalistic uh, for us to name others as vulnerable and to suggest in any way that that is an unchanging kind of a thing. You know, well, if you're a woman, you're just always going to be vulnerable. And, you know, I think most women certainly would (laughs) (laughs) I want to reject that pigeonholing. So, I mean, the same is really true for children. I mean, look, obviously infants and toddlers don't have a lot of power and capacity to resist the impacts of uh, hazards on their young lives, true. But, you know, young people's uh, capacities, their knowledge and their strengths can certainly be developed and uh, we really shouldn't underestimate them.
1: So we often see people with disabilities being described as having special needs. And I mean, we all have special needs at some point. I'm vegetarian, I have a need for vegetarian food. Um, A woman who's pregnant has a need for certain healthcare services. Someone who's experienced trauma has a need for psychosocial support. So why is it that we only label the needs of people with disabilities as being special? Um, So I think part of it is about telling stories that recognize that all all human beings have diverse needs and that good programming is about recognizing and responding to all of those needs so firstly really avoiding this language of of special needs versus basic human needs which which everybody has i
15: found examples of prisoners being used to do really any type of work that needs to be done in an emergency or disaster and I've actually talked to representatives of um, prison systems uh, at the state level, where I ask, you know, what can prisoners do in a disaster, and the response is literally anything, anything we want. Um, and practically speaking, uh, legally speaking, that's true. Uh, prisoners are a significant component of how the United States deals with disasters, and um other countries as well but they're they're specifically built into our laws and policies um for example the the stafford act specifically includes prison labor as a reimbursable cost so under um the fema public assistance program states can have the costs of using
1: prisoners reimbursed the idea of homelessness is a cautionary tale that hey you know if you don't participate in the market economy in a certain way, if you're not an active member, quote unquote, active member of society that, you know, this will happen to you and this deserves to happen to you, that you deserve to be in this situation. And that kind of that stigma that and I'm speaking very generally, you know, but that that stigma not only serves to uh, create vulnerability and to further marginalize these groups. But I mean, I think it's just like you said, you're, you're pointing to To people, to certain segments of the population, is a problem. Without thinking about, wait, you know, what is it? Why why do we have people who are experiencing homelessness, for instance? What what are we doing? How is our society structured in a way that limits not only limits people from having access to resources, but um, you know, puts them, I guess, puts them in these precarious situations? Um, I think it's often an easy way. To say, oh, well, you know, they're the problem because of their, you know, these individuals have these individual problems. And it's easier for us to think in that in those terms than it is to think about how our society is structured, and how we as a society, you know, reinforce um, systems of oppression.
0: So what Darian and Sarah and Alison and Mariam and Marla and Kirsten and Carly and Jamie have all discussed is that actually uh, the problem with vulnerable, and I use quotation marks here, uh, people is that uh, we call them vulnerable, right? We um, presume vulnerability and it's really quite patronizing um, and it doesn't reflect the reality. Um, instead it kind of creates this societal um, stigmatization of people who may be weak right and we've discussed the issue of vulnerability as a term before.
4: Yeah and I love the way that Jamie ended there kind of asking some deeper questions like surely when we're talking about the way that people are um, made vulnerable and several guests have used the term vulnerable eyes, you know, to indicate that somebody else's actions actually have an impact on these groups. Um, And I I really like the way that Jamie put it there. Like, we need to ask deeper questions about society. What kind of society allows this or indeed designs this into the way things are supposed to be? What sort of bullshit is that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, why uh, Why do we decide that this is, we as a kind of society, right? Um, that, that this is how people should be treated or people should be talked about instead of actually um, giving voice to people. And, you know, I've been um, recently listening to a teaching um, and it was Astro Taylor and also uh, Kianga Yamata Taylor. And they were actually raising this question about vulnerability and um, people who are called, again, quotation mark, voiceless, right? And these people are not voiceless. They do have voice, but it's us as a society who just takes that voice from them because we don't want to know what is happening because they expose the root causes of everything that then comes to, you know, that then manifests once disaster occurs.
4: Wow, that's so true. So anyway, I would encourage everybody to listen to those episodes Um, that was kind of episodes like 13 to six or 12 to 16. We're dealing with different, um, groups, but I mean, the thing to take away, if you haven't heard all the episodes in the season and you're just listening to this kind of recap, um, the whole season is really dealing with, you know, the, the importance of telling stories and using different mediums to tell stories, the, the power behind it and how power can be abused. In manipulating us through stories, and then also just the being really ca- more careful and um intentional about the way that we talk about different groups in society because identity is important, you know, and um, people are pushed to the margins and oppressed because of their identity, and that's when it becomes important, you know, identity. I feel like sometimes it's just used as like a badge to kind of feel good about yourself or whatever, or to to kind of virtue signal, but real identity, like, which is used to oppress people, that's some serious stuff to deal with there, right?
0: Yeah. And we will continue the story of storytelling in the next season, in season three, um, because i guess we feel that this this is really important we really can't um start solving the problems we really can't challenge the status quo if we don't understand what it is we're challenging and you know we don't use the right words um to challenge exactly that so this is now the end of second season Thank you again for listening to us. And we will be back with season three um, on the first Monday in July, which is 6th of July, I believe.
4: Yeah, this season has just been uh, phenomenal. I've really enjoyed being part of it and getting to know some of our guests better and some for the first time has been amazing. Um, And learning from them, learning just more about our field and some of these topics just such a privilege as a researcher to expand my view and yeah looking forward to to not losing touch with all of you who are listening we're going to produce be producing other content special episodes live streams um we have lots of ideas and in season 3 we hope to have some exciting partnerships lined up to kick off in season 3 as well so one thing to, to remind you of is if you haven't sent us your thoughts about the manifesto, um, log on to Twitter, have a recap of what the questions are. Maybe Ksenia, you can remind us what the questions are.
0: Uh, Jason put me on the spot there. I actually have them written down. Um, so the questions are really around the um the the kind of the power and what it is we, um, you know, we we talk about. So are you happy with the way research is being conducted internationally and nationally? Um, What is your relationship with researchers when you conduct research? And do you feel that the terminology and also also epistemologies that we use are actually suitable for the way um, that research um, is conducted in disaster studies? So, yeah, please do send us your thoughts. Um, I think it'll be fascinating to uh, um, unpack that and explore that.
4: Okay, and if you're not a researcher, ignore that last 30 seconds and all the jargon.
0: Yeah, well, as always, I think everyone's realized that I am the main contributor to our jargon jar. Um, I think release the Resilience episode exposed my inability uh, to not say isms, um, not to use Foucault and so on and so forth. Um, I'll try better in season three, I do promise. But I must might start cursing <laughs> as, as a substitute.
4: <laughs> yeah, I'm considering it as well.
0: Great. okay so we're gonna we're gonna get a curse uh, swear jar uh, in addition to our jargon jar. But also um, I wanted to re- <laughs> I wanted to remind you also about the book group that we are running so Jason um, has chosen a new book and we are reading the new Jim Crow. Uh by Michelle Alexandre so if you want to join us um and talk about the book, please read the book um and send us your thoughts on discord uh, and also on Twitter or even via email and we'll post soon the date of the book group discussion
4: okay, so don't forget to follow us wherever um you can, which is twitter instagram, facebook are we anywhere else yet we We made a YouTube account, but we're not really doing that yet but um the Facebook group has grown pretty well. there's like 900 people on the Facebook page now. It's nice. but yeah at all those locations you find us at disastersdecon. and you can also hashtag disastersdecon yeah we'll we'll stay in touch over the next few months and look forward to building things onward and upward in season three. so it's been really a pleasure. Thank you all for listening this season.
0: and have a lovely. Spring, summer break, whatever is coming.
4: Quarantine.
0: (laughs) Oh, have a lovely quarantine. Yeah, that also. See you all soon. Bye.